Our scripture this morning comes from uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 10. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's word. All right, so good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. This is the city congregation. We need to start saying that because as of last week, we planted another church in our city, the southwest congregation of our, of our church. Uh, and so uh, we are excited that God continues to bless and to add to our number and to move us forward in the vision and the mission that we believe he's given us. And so uh, it's good, good things happening. We continue this morning in a series throughout the Gospel of Luke. This whole month of January, we've been looking at a number of the different parables from Luke's Gospel uh, that are unique to Luke's Gospel. And this morning, we come to this, this story, this interaction between Jesus and his disciples and then the parable that he tells uh, as a way of instructing them. Now, if you, are, if you are keen, you know, one of the things of doing what I, what I do uh, every week is, I, I, uh, in my Bible I wrote, about in May of last year, we preached from this same text. I would like to think that because that was only seven months ago, that it would not be prudent to come back to the same place. But let's be honest, you probably don't even remember that sermon. I don't even remember that sermon. And so even though we were here seven months ago, I do think uh, it's helpful to us to come back to this yet again. This is a really powerful passage of Scripture uh, and a really important topic uh, that we need to just periodically find our way back to, this, this topic of forgiveness. Now, it's a hard topic. This is a hard passage. And so if I do my job this morning, this should be a hard sermon. It should leave you with more questions than answers. It should stretch you without getting into too much of, you know, forgiveness can be hard because... Uh, there is, there's obviously levels of pain that we inflict upon one another. There are real horrible things that people have done to some of us, and uh, we don't want to lighten any of that in the discussion of this, this topic of forgiveness. But there are some things here, without being able to comment on everything, that are going to really stretch us, and we have to really open our ears and listen to what God would say to us, okay? So this is good stuff. So let's just turn right to the passage, and I want you to see... Uh, this topic of forgiveness, we're going to talk about three things, and they're the three points of the outline that I've provided for you. We're going to talk about the necessity of forgiveness, why we need it so much, uh, the definition of forgiveness, what it is, and then thirdly, the power for forgiveness, where it comes from. So why we need, why we need forgiveness, why we need to be a community of people that are committed to forgiving one another, uh, what it means to forgive, and then where, where, we can, where the power, where, where forgiveness comes from, where the power comes from, okay? 
So let's just start and, and go right into this. First, in the, in the necessity, <coughs> excuse me, the, the necessity of forgiveness. Uh, there's an expectation here uh, that Jesus gives to us in verses 3 through 5, and it's the expectation of Christian community that we will, that we will sin against people and be sinned against, okay? Uh, there's a reason for this. The church, church is hard. Uh, sometimes it's harder than other, than other groups and other relationships we have because church is real community. It's not pseudo-community. And what most of us picture in our mind when we think of community is actually what sociologists have referred to as pseudo-community. And pseudo-community is characterized by an absence of conflict. But the problem is, is it's not real. So the essential dynamic of pseudo-community is conflict avoidance. Now, there's a difference, I hope you're aware, between a true absence of conflict and a strategy of conflict avoidance. And so in, in pseudo-community, what I'm describing as pseudo-community, uh, everybody is pleasant with one another, but it's fake, it's dishonest, because in order to keep the peace, you have to withhold some of the truth about yourself. You can't really talk about how you're feeling, because if you do, it might hurt somebody else's feelings. You might be mad at another person, but you don't talk about it, you don't go there, you keep things light. Uh, small talk dominates the conversation. You don't talk about deep things. You communicate in generalities, in platitudes. And so you look, and everything seems to be going just fine. But underneath the surface, boiling just underneath the surface, people feel misunderstood, or they feel emotions that they, that they don't have permission to share, and so there's frustration, and a lot of times there's deep alienation, even though everybody's having fun together. So pseudo-community is built upon the foundation of everyone being content to be emotionally dishonest for the sake of things going smoothly. You hear that? Everybody's content to be emotionally dishonest because the thing that we need more than anything else is for everybody to act like they're getting along just fine. By the way, this is most families at Thanksgiving. Most of us. Not all of us. Most. Now, genuine, genuine Christian community is something entirely different. The Bible says that if you're, if you're not having to work through conflict in your marriage, in your friendships, in your small group, whatever the case might be, then it's not real community. It's pseudo-community. The way you know, the way you know that your marriage or your friendship, your group has passed beyond pseudo-community, which is fake, to real community is that, is that it feels like you're always having to work through some kind of conflict on some level. And that's because of the work we've been given to do in Christian community in the church. It's right here, verse 3, at the beginning. If your brother sins, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So we're all sinners. I mean, Eugene Peterson said, uh, you know, the reason people, people complain about the church all the time, and it's a silly thing because they forget that every church is a congregation of sinners. And as if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Got it. Loud and clear. It's true. I knew he was going to do that, by the way. I just knew. I was ready for that. It's right here in my notes. We're all, we're all sinners. We're all constantly sinning against one another. We're, and we're, we're to meet our own moral failure and the moral failure of others with brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. And by the way, guess what? That means conflict. So conflict isn't a failure of community. 
you know, if you go to a church and, there, and, and it's hard and, and there's relationships that are just, <clears throat> you know, you're having to work through things, conflict doesn't mean the failure of community. It actually is the doorway to true community. And here's what happens. Here's what makes me really, really sad. I've been doing this for a while, you know, a while now, and, I, and I've seen this over and over again. What happens to most people is that they experience conflict at some, at some level, you know, in the church. Let me just talk about in the church, but it's other groups too. So there's, there's disappointment, there's frustration, it becomes emotionally taxing for them, whatever the case might be, and, and they conclude that something's wrong, and then they move on. And then they go to another place, and it's fine for a little while, and then it eventually they begin, to, they begin to experience the same kind of, you know, thing. There's conflict, there's frustration, there's hurt feelings, misunderstandings. Well, this place is broken too, so I'm going to move on. And they keep moving from place to place to place, and they never get past the pseudo-community stage to real community. Because the only way to do that is to stay. And there's a temptation to just go from place to place to place. To go from when, when you experience this kind of thing, to go find another pseudo-community to start over with. Because it's a lot easier to live in that than it is in what this text ultimately calls us to. And I don't do that. Let's don't do that. Let's fight for gospel friendships. I mean, that's part of what the text is calling us to. If a brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing I really want to hone in on this morning. <clears throat> because I, I know, I know for many of us, uh, this will really land and make sense. That sometimes, sometimes the hardest relationships, uh, you know, the hardest relationships to figure out how to do this in are the closest or the most long-standing relationships that we have. Sometimes the hardest relationships in which to rebuke, sin, forgive, uh, in light of repentance, are the, the closest relationships, family, de- you know, intimate, personal, real, uh, real close friendships, family relationships, long-standing relationships. And there's a reason for this too. And we learn from the text this as well, that not only are we sinners, look at this, we're habitual sinners. <laughs> not only do we act selfishly and insensitively towards one another, but we do it again and again and again, and we do it the same way to one another again and again and again. So Jesus says, verse 4, for brother sins against you seven times in a day. Seven times in a day. Then you turn, and he turns seven times to you saying, I repent. You must, you must forgive him. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says that there are sins in his life, that no matter what he did, he, he, he couldn't stop doing them. The good I want to do, I don't seem to do, and all the stuff that I don't want to be doing, that's the stuff that I can't seem to stop doing, Paul says. So not only do we sin against one another over and over again, but we sin against one another in the same way over and over again. And it's hard, it's hard to not grow weary, isn't it? I've been married for 18 years, which, which just means, I mean, this sounds really cynical, and I don't mean for it to. I've been married for 18 years, which means that we're 18 years into sinning against one another the same way over and over again. It's true. Now, I think she would agree that we are finding it easier to rebuke and forgive today than in earlier years of marriage, and I just want to say that's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a work of God's grace in our lives. He gets all the credit for that because the normal way, the normal way is to grow weary and cynical and find yourself less and less able to have compassion on the other person when you're having to forgive them for the same thing over and over and over again. Moms, what does clean your room 
sound like the first time you say it to your kids in the morning versus the seventh time you say it after they failed to do it the other six times during the day? What's it sound like the seventh time? There's usually a bite there, isn't there? Why? Because it's hard. It's hard to, to have to ask the same thing over and over again. Colossians 3 says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And this is the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest to do with people you're most familiar with, long-standing friendships, because you grow weary over time and your expectations, your expectations for the relationship increase over time, uh, but also because when you have a long history, it gets harder and harder. It gets harder and harder. Listen to Colossians to know when to bear with and when to forgive. Colossians says, put on compassionate hearts, bearing with one another in patience, and forgiving one another. So part of it is it gets harder and harder to know when, when you're called just to bear with and when there really is something to forgive. Sometimes there's nothing to forgive and we just need to bear with one another. And then there are times where there's real offense, real offense, and we need, and we need to forgive. But the challenge with being so familiar with one another in marriage and family relationships and long-standing friendships, whatever the case might be, is that over time, you know, over time, sin and selfishness in me interacting with what I'm finding in the other person, sin and selfishness can turn what really is an annoyance into a grievance. And this is a problem. We're all selfish enough, if we're honest, if we're being honest, uh, we can really annoy one another, right? Right? We can annoy one another, even the best of us, even in the best relationships. Tim just walked in, he's like, oh, we're talking about annoying one another in church today. This is fun. <laughs> we can really annoy one another. Uh, you know, it's not that you were late, it's that you're always late. It's not that you didn't return my phone call yesterday. You never return my phone calls. It's not that you forgot to take out the trash. You always forget. You're forgetful. Be careful, this is a, this is a, a really subtle form of judging. It's, it is unforgiveness, that right there, that difference. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But being annoyed, being annoyed at just somebody's quirks or somebody's, you know, weaknesses in their personality, however you want to characterize that. Being annoyed and being sinned against aren't the same thing. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, are, am I upset because the person is hurting themselves and they're hurting other people and this is a really big deal or am I just upset because they can't get it together and they're making my life harder bearing with and forgiving are two different things and the longer you go in a relationship the harder it is to know which one you're supposed to do right and so my advice is this assume assume you're just annoyed assume you're just annoyed and then work on you and not the other person. And then if it goes on, there'll come a day where you really do have to heed the words here in verse 4. If a brother sins against you seven times, if he sins against you seven times, and then he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You know what my favorite word in that sentence is? Must. You must. So I've started doing this. Instead of asking people to forgive me when I do something stupid, I just I start out, I say, you know you have to forgive me, right? No matter what comes next, no matter what I say next, you have to forgive me. Yeah, 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 okay, okay, good. Let me, so, and then comes the confession. Of course, the text also says that I must repent. Don't miss that, that I can't just go on in my sinning and assume that God 
God's grace means that I don't have to change. You can't, you, you, know, you can't expect me to change. No, I can expect you to forgive me. Oh, I'm so grateful for that. And you can expect me to be working on changing. That's the way this works. So pay attention to the case study that Jesus gives us here. It's important. Okay, it's really important the way he characterizes this, characterizes this in, th- in verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 19.11, it's, it's man's glory to overlook an offense. So we don't need to, to be pointing out every little thing in one another. Our first instinct should always be to cover each other's sins with patience and compassion. So how do you know when to overlook an offense and when to confront? And the text is really helpful. This is a description of a person who's trapped in sin. Seven times a day they sin against you. They, they don't want to do the things they're doing, but they can't seem to stop. They keep sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, and so forth. Now, you know what this feels like, don't you? I do. Jesus says where there's a pattern of sin that is destructive and the person is hard-hearted, then you always rebuke. But where there's a pattern of sin, but the person is broken-hearted and desperate for change, they keep on, they keep moving towards repentance. As they keep moving towards repentance, you keep moving towards forgiveness. I mean, you've heard the old proverb, be kind, everyone you meet is finding a hard battle. I mean, part of the truth of the scripture that would inform our lives here is that what most of us need in our struggle against sin is not correction, but compassion. Can I say that again? What most of us, most of us, most of the time, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's pretty high. What most of us need most of the time in our struggle against sin is not correction, but compassion. I need that. You do too. And I, 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 when I was writing this, I sat at my computer right here in my prep for 10 solid minutes this week trying to put into words what it would be like for someone to come at my sins compassionately. And I just kind of stared at the computer. Because I, you know, I experience people's compassion all the time, but seldom do I experience compassion in the places in my life where I need it the most. Instead, I experience aggravation. Or this is like, I'm a firstborn child, so this is, this is you know, I, I can remember standing in the foyer of my house as a child and my dad saying, you know, the typical, I'm not, I'm not upset with you, I'm disappointed in you. Disappointment, aggravation. I know I can be aggravating. I don't need you to remind me I can be aggravating. I'm aggravated with myself. Hello, anybody else out there? I need compassion directed at the parts of my life that I need it the most. We're all fighting a hard battle. We're all cut up and broken and bruised in forgiveness. Forgiveness and compassion is a soothing ointment for our wounds. It is medicine. It is cold water in the desert. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. Can we do that? Let's do that. I need that. I think you do too. So gospel community is invasive. We are invested in one another's flourishing, which means we're committed to loving. We're committed to loving, compassionate confrontation. And that always means conflict. And so the the degree to which you're obedient to the command to speak the truth in love, conflict will increase. So don't measure, don't measure the strength of a relationship by the absence of conflict. The true measure, the true measure according to the Bible of the strength of a relationship or a group, what makes gospel community so special and so supernatural is 
the ability to experience conflict and compassion at the same time. To be able to rub up against one another's selfishness, but always with compassionate hearts for one another and kindness, humility, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving. So let's talk about what forgiveness is for a minute. Because that's really what this text is about, isn't it? The Greek word that's translated here, forgiveness, means to let go or to erase. So the image is a debt. That's what we have to get in our minds. Every sin creates a debt. When someone seriously wrongs you, there is absolutely uh, an unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you. The wrong, the wrong that's been done to you has incurred an obligation, a, a liability, a debt. And you have two choices in that moment. You can insist that the other person pay the debt, that they pay it off. Or you can choose to pay it off yourself. Now, let me explain. When you've been wronged by someone, you feel a strong compulsion and an instinct to make the other person pay for what they've done, typically by hurting them in some way, uh, by destroying their reputation, or maybe just waiting and watching and hoping that something really bad will happen to them because they've caused so much bad stuff in your life. You've been hurt. And the only thing that feels like it will make it better is for the other person the one that's hurt you, for them to hurt too. Only when you see them suffering does it feel like that the debt has been paid and the sense of obligation is gone. So you make the other person pay. And we do this in a lot of different ways. We do it by gossiping or actively working towards the downfall of the other person or by just allowing anger and resentment to lodge itself in our hearts so that we just become kind of, we have this sour face and expression every time we see the other person crossing the room. That's the, that's the natural, normal response. Make the other person pay, but there's another choice. Or, or you can put all of that aside and you can choose to pay down the debt yourself. And that's forgiveness. Forgiveness means you get up, give up the right to seek repayment from the one who's wronged you. You pay the debt. You absorb the pain that has been created by the offense. You choose to suffer instead of hoping and working for the other person's suffering. When I was a youth pastor... Years ago now, there was a, a kid in my youth ministry that I loved dearly, and he, was, he had graduated out of our ministry and was in college, and he was struggling uh, financially and, and, and otherwise. And this was before, it's so, I was thinking about this, this is 15 years ago, so this was even 15 years ago before student loans were just an assumption. And so he, uh, he needed some equipment for this degree program that he really felt like God was calling him to. And without uh, being able to have the equipment, he would have had to take some time off of school. So long story short, uh, I was a, a, you know, uh, just a lowly youth pastor with a couple of small kids. I loaned him $5,000, which at the time was just about everything I had in savings. And it was a lot of money, but 15 years ago was a really lot of money. So he, he was going to graduate. We'd work this out and then get a job. But uh, he, he finally made it, but in a different degree field. Uh, than the one that we had planned for him to do, and he eventually sold the equipment. And uh, again, long story short, he never paid me back. And this, and he never even, he never even, uh, he never even called me to talk to me about it. Now, what do you do? Right? You know, should I call him? You know, I could, I could call him. I could, you know, make him feel really guilty. I could, I could make demands and say, you know, you agreed to this. We didn't sign any papers or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I could do that. I could keep, I could lodge a resentment in my heart or, or I could forgive, I could forgive the $5,000 and absorb it as a loss. But see, the point is somebody has to pay. Either he was out the 5000 to me or I was out it 
to him, and I wish I could say it ended well. It's another story for another time. It didn't. It's haunted our relationship ever since. But see, the point, the point of the story is just that when you're sinned against, you lose something. Perhaps you lose reputation, perhaps peace of mind, perhaps money. Perhaps you lose a relationship or an opportunity. There's always a debt of some kind. There's a debt of some kind, and there's no way to deal with, with the loss of that debt without suffering. Either you make the other person suffer, or you have to absorb the suffering yourself by refusing to become bitter and staying invested in the relationship and not withdrawing, or by refusing to bring it up and run the other person down uh, when you have the opportunity to, uh, but instead actively seeking the other person's good. That's hard. It's supernatural. But we get to the bottom and we see. We see what's at stake here. We really do. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. This spirit of, I'm not going to meet other people's, uh, the ways that other people have hurt me with a spirit of generosity and compassion and unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is, is me insisting on your life for mine. It's unbelief. It's, it's the opposite of the gospel. It's your pain for my, the only thing that will bring me comfort is to see you in pain. Your life for mine. Your hurt. If you hurt, then I'll feel, then I'll feel relief. Do you see how this works? This is unforgiveness. Your life for mine. I've got I've to do something awful to you so that I can feel better for myself. Forgiveness is the exact opposite. Forgiveness is I choose in the moment to live by a different, by a different equation, by a different rule. Forgiveness is my life for yours. My life for yours. My pain. I will absorb the pain so that, you, so that you can be free from it. I will absorb the hurt uh, so that it, you know, it's not yours to bear. Forgiveness, my life for yours. Isn't that, isn't that significant? It sounds a whole lot like the gospel. Now let me make one application, one particular application uh, before we move on uh, to, to the end here. And, and it's just this. When you have a long history of being hurt, by the same person in the same way over and over again. It's, it's so hard. It's so hard to be in the moment without all of the history. Let me say it again. See, when, when, when you have a long-standing relationship and a long-standing long history with someone of being hurt over and over again, it's so hard to be in the moment without all of that history. Now remember, seven times here, Luke 17.4, seven times you're sinned against and seven times you forgive. So bitterness, bitterness... Is, is being in the moment of, of a relationship, of a marriage, of a group, whatever the what case might be, it's being in the moment with all of the history. You're not just ever in the moment. It's, it's the moment, but with all of this stuff back here too. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is deliberate amnesia about other people's faults. Oh, gosh. I long for that. Love is sinned against seven times in the same way, but the seventh feels exactly like the very first because there's no history. Bitterness makes a list of all the sins and checks it twice and three times and four and again and again and again until every moment, the moments begin to be created by the history. So you've not recovered from the past, so you bring it with you into the moment, and it shapes things. You begin to expect the other person to do the bad things they always do, the way they have in the past, and that expectation distorts things. It creates a story 
of your, about your relationship that simply is not true. It's a form of judging. And that's why Jesus starts, look there in verse 3, pay, pay, pay careful attention to this. What Jesus says here at the very beginning, he says, pay attention to yourself. See, the real, this, is, this we have to wrap our heads around, the real danger. The real danger when somebody hurts you, and especially when they do it over and over and over again, is not what the other person has done, but what it does to you. See, being, being hurt, being, being offended, being sinned against puts you in danger because it is an opportunity for unforgiveness to lodge itself in your heart. So sometimes the unforgiveness it creates is harder to deal with than the original sin. And so I love the apostles' re- response because, uh, because it's exactly how I feel too. Jesus is teaching. Do you see there verse 5? How do they respond? Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> so they say, we lack faith. We don't have the emotional wealth and energy to do this. Faith is the power source for forgiveness. And that's our last point. Unforgiveness comes from unbelief. Forgiveness comes from faith. It's not a horizontal problem. It's a vertical problem. Did you hear that? Unforgiveness is not a horizontal problem. It's a vertical problem. If you're struggling to forgive somebody who has hurt you over and over again, it's not because your relationship with that other person is dysfunctional. It's because your relationship with God is dysfunctional. And this is what Jesus says. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 6, we lack faith, and that's why it's so hard to forgive. And the parable that I just love here, beginning in verse 7, illustrates what this lack of faith is. It is a failure to believe the gospel. If you don't forgive, you're forgetting grace. That's what Jesus is teaching. If you don't forgive, it's because you're forgetting grace. Imagine, Jesus says, a servant who at the end of a hard day of plowing in the fields comes into the house and looks at his master and says, I'm going to take a break now. Get your own dinner. In fact, in fact, now that I think about it, while you're at it, would you mind bringing me a plate? No, it's the servant's job to spend all day in the field and then come into the house and serve his master dinner and then after the master has been served to sit down and eat. Imagine such a servant. Why would he act this way? Only if he had come to believe that the master owes him something because of all the hard work he's been doing. I mean, and that's the case here. Look at verse 9. Does the master, Jesus say, says, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 9. Does the master now owe the servant something because he did what he was told to do? Has his work in the fields earned him a night off and a hot meal? The obvious answer is, is no. I mean, the disciples cry, verse 6, Lord, increase our faith. What you're asking, they're saying, you know, what you're asking is, is impossible. It's above and beyond. If we do that, what, wouldn't that really be something? And Jesus replies, no, not really. Not really. Just a mustard seed-sized faith. That's all it takes. In other words, in other words, we are often in the places where we're really hurt, we often look at forgiveness as some superhuman feat. And Jesus here is trying to, to say, no, really, there's not really anything superhuman about it. It's simply what Christians do. We forgive. Because we've been forgiven. It's not really that big of a deal. You're thinking too highly of yourself and your obedience, Jesus says. That's your problem. And so verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, you should cry, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty So when you've done all that you were commanded to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. I'm putting putting it on record today. I want that to be the sermon text at my funeral. I mean, I'm hoping for 50 years of ministry in this place, in this city, and at the end of 50 years, it would only be my duty. 
those that went with the church plant, we celebrated them and applauded them, but at the end of the day, really, going with a church plant, that's just our duty. The Ellswicks, who packed up their four small girls and moved to a third world country, man, they're my heroes, but really, they're just doing their duty. No sacrifice any of us can make is all that impressive in light of what is truly owed to the master we serve. No obedience gives us a special claim on him. It does not put God in our debt. It only gives him what he deserves. In our best moral efforts, in our heroic moments, we are nothing more than unworthy servants. We deserve nothing. That's what that word means. We deserve nothing. I mean, the servant Jesus imagines is expecting a ticker tape parade in his honor because he plowed the field that belonged to the man who provided for his every every need out of said field. Mom, Dad, I brushed my teeth, I went to school, I finished my homework, that'll be $100, please. Jesus is saying, don't forget your place. Don't forget who you are. Masters don't wait on their servants. Servants wait on their masters. But unbelief is this. Unbelief says, I do something great for God and then he owes me. Faith, faith. And that's, that's at the bottom of, of, of unforgiveness. Faith says, no matter what I do, I'm only an unworthy servant, therefore it's all grace. All of my life flows from gratitude, and that is the power. That's the power for forgiveness. Don't, don't forget your place. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget the greatness of the master you serve. It's true. It's true. Masters don't wait on their servants. Servants wait on their masters. But, but, but we have a master who serves. In Luke 12, Jesus tells another story about another master and a servant. And this master has been gone to a wedding feast. And while he was away... His servant kept everything ready for his return because, again, it was the job of the servant to make sure that when the master got home, there was a fire in the fireplace and food on the table so that he could sit down and eat and relax after his long journey. But this master, this master, let me use Jesus' words. Here's what he says. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and he will serve them. You remember the scene at the Last Supper where Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet and he comes to Peter and Peter says, no. And then Jesus has to say to him, Peter, if I don't wash you, if I don't serve you in this way, then you have no part in me. Then what's the lesson? The lesson is that the way to heaven is not to try to serve him, it's to be served by him. Isn't that, does that land on anybody besides me? The way to heaven is not, what kind of God is this? The way to heaven is not to serve him, but to be served by him. If, you, if I don't serve you, you have no part in me. The Son of Man came to be served. To, excuse me. The Son of came, Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life for yours. Not your life for his. That's not the way his heart works. His life for yours. And that's the gospel. See, every sin creates a debt. In a choice. Do I make you pay down the sin? Do I pay it down myself? Someone has to pay. Someone has to hurt. Do I insist that you pay off the debt? Your life for mine? Do I insist upon that? That's unforgiveness. Or do I pay down the debt myself? My life for yours? That's forgiveness. It's an echo of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ. What is the essence of the gospel? The essence of the gospel is his life for ours. His life in the place of mine. His suffering so that I might live. And we, what we're being told here is we get the chance to reenact the gospel every time we find ourselves crossways with one another. 
And in doing so, we get the chance to grow in our understanding of his great love for us. It is a high and holy calling, and it's how our children will come to know. In our city, it's how our city will come to know that the gospel that we talk about is real. In 2007, Charles Roberts walked into an Amish school in Lancaster, PA, and killed five little Amish girls, and then he killed himself. He lined the children up and then singled out the girls because years before, he uh, had lost a little girl of his own, and he had decided that this was the only way that he could get back at God for what God had taken from him. It was a horrible evil. The Amish community, the irony is, is there are a lot of people in evangelical Christianity that would question whether or not they're true Christians, but gosh, they sure act like it a lot. The Amish community believed strongly in the practice of forgiveness, and so they not only grieved the loss of their little girls, but when it came time for the funeral of this man who killed their little girls, they attended his funeral as well, and they singled out his mom and dad, and they went and hugged them and consoled them because, of course, they had lost a child too in this great evil. And I was reading some articles about this because it really fascinates me, and what, one of the neat things, almost 10 years later now, Terry Roberts, Charles Roberts' mother, goes to the house of one of the little girls that was shot but not killed, who was severely, severely um, wounded by this, and every Thursday morning, the mother of the man who shot her comes to her house to take care of her for her family. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, what explanation is there for that? Besides, that God's love is real, and that the gospel really is the power of God. Isn't that beautiful? It's the kind of world made possible by forgiveness. So it seems to me that we should pray with the disciples, Lord, (laughs) increase our faith. And so let's pray. Can we do that, Father? We do ask that you increase our faith, that in these last moments we have in this service, as we sing together, that you continue to make yourself known to us, that you continue... In singing, that we would admonish and, and encourage and, and, and teach one another, uh, as the Scripture says in the words of these songs, that we would hear yet again the, the message of your gospel, of the great love that you have for us in Jesus, and that um, as we meditate and as we exhort one another in the singing, that, um, that we would come to see the opportunity that is ours to not just believe in your great love for us, but to become, but to become the gospel in the way that we love one another. It's a high and holy calling, as I've said. And it's so hard, and so we need your help. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to come, uh, even in these moments, work in us, produce this fruit in us, that we might honor and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's really hard, isn't it, for me to decide that I'm going to live my life towards you, my, my life for yours. That's scary. It's, it's hard, and the only, the only way to do that is to know the, the assurance of this benediction that God has already settled his heart. God lives towards every single one of us in Jesus Christ, his life for ours. And that's the very reason why we can go and do what he's called us to do, which is just our duty. So receive the benediction and then go in his power. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.